0: Welcome to Speaking Out. We're
1: mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment Aboriginal enterprises in mining exploration and ener- talk a little bit about uh, indigenous constitutional recognition those two
0: with Larissa Barrett. It's a fresh view coming on. on ABC Radio.
1: We we need to have you know take power as women. And I don't mean taking power as women on social media, you know, and giving opinionated pieces. I mean collectively taking power and working as a collective to bring about change. You know, I think that that is what's missing. There's a lot of people saying things, but there's not a lot of people doing things. And as I said, there's still a lot to be done. You know, every social indicator, we're still down
2: the bottom. First Nations women look to the future in conversation with distinguished Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Indigenous women, white feminism and power, colonial violence and self-determination. What are the obstacles and pathways to a new future led by First Nations women? These were the core issues explored during the conversation First Nations Women Look to the Future, held as part of the 2022 All About Women Festival at the Sydney Opera House. Distinguished Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson's seminal work Talking Up to the White Woman, Indigenous Women and Feminism was first published over 20 years ago. The book was way ahead of its time challenging the whiteness of feminism and asking the question, where do First Nations women fit in the feminism hierarchy? As one of Australia's leading Indigenous academics, Aileen Morton-Robinson has been a long-time advocate for Indigenous rights and has paved the way for new generations of Indigenous scholars. I am uh, a Gulenphul woman from Kwantamooka. Uh,
1: um, my, um, my bloodline to country is um, Gurunpul uh, and my, uh, through the women, I'm also I have bloodline to Yagra, which is uh, the south side of the Brisbane River, Turubul in the north, and further north to Gubbi Gubbi. So, southeast Queensland um, is where the Guris are, we're Guris, um, and uh, I, um, so, so I have bloodlines there, but my primary area of where I grew up was. Uh, on uh, Minjira Bar and I consider that to have been a very um, fortunate thing, given that the majority of Indigenous people didn't grow up on country. I was very, very lucky. Um, so who inspires me? It's really my grandparents uh, who raised me and uh, the women of Kwantamooka who are a, uh, amazing women, and I've sort of done research on their um, right. I, you know, it'll be one of the books that comes out after I leave academia, because then I'll have time to write it. Um, but it, it'll be about um, the way in which they were very formidable and um, fought on uh, the Kipper, uh, which is like known as the Bora elsewhere, but they were known all throughout uh, Southeast Queensland as being warrior women. Um, and then even in the recordings of um, uh, explorers, they talk about don't trust them because we were the, um, the scouts, so the women would go out and look at where they were, and then the next day the men had hit and the women had joined the fight. So, you know, coming from a very um, warrior culture, you know, doesn't sort of situate you really well for the world. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, so I... Uh, was absolutely perplexed uh, about uh, white women's business and not standing up to men you know like overtly and taking your ground I didn't grow up in that culture Um, so yeah that was interesting I don't know probably gone off tangent
2: but what No not at all Um, and what I I love is of course it's such a wonderful reminder that when we look to the women who've been trailblazers for us they are of course, trailblazing behind a whole other generation. Oh, absolutely, Larissa. I mean, I
1: think that my... when I, I was just reflecting before of... Then when I think about... And, and I'm talking about being now about 14, 15 years of age, the women that I had the privilege of, um, you know, working with in terms of land rights were Cheryl Buchanan, um, you know, Graceland Smallwood, Henrietta Four Mile... Uh, I knew Isabel Coe, uh, Jenny Munro. Um, you know, as a as a, as a young and um, involved, and the strong women that were in the Brisbane community, uh, the elders that were there, like um, oh Annie there was an Arnie Jean Phillips, and uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think of uh, there was another Arnie Arnie Maybury, and just a whole group of women who. Um, and Annie Eunice Watson, um, who were so kind and caring, and um, helped I guess to shape the kind of politics that I um, became, the movement that I became a part of, which I had origins in because my grandparents were very political. Um, so I was acute because all right context. So my grandparents only had one pair of glasses when you're poor. Um, and they both couldn't see. So, And let me just say, one side was cracked. So there was really only one good lens. Uh, so my job every Sunday was to read the newspaper to them. Um, and so then I would witness the debate. So they would be, have discussions about Kennedy. They'd have you know, discussions about Martin Luther King. Uh, my grandmother was quite radical compared to my grandfather. He really thought that you know, Martin Luther King was the right way, passive. She was very much... No. <laughs> um, no. And, you know, when the 67 referendum came, I was 11 at the time, and, and we had to walk in. So there's eight grandchildren. So everything... She's, she's washing by hand. She's fundamentally ironing with an old, you know, bloody uh, metho-iron thing. And to get all us kids ready to go into town, because we always had to look respectable, to vote was the slowest walk in that mile, because we lived a mile out of town as most blacks who were put elsewhere were. So we're sort of going, and she is still on the way saying to my grandfather, they're not going to change. Like, why, you, why you, you have made me do this, clean them kids, own everything, and they're not going to change. What are we on? And he's on there going... Look, you know, we need to exercise our right to vote. You know, we've got to go. we got to go with the democracy. And she used, to, she used to, go when she was disgusted. She used to
2: go,
1: <laughs> 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 you know, just Pleh. you know. And um, yeah, so she was, she was like, she was the fighter in that sense, um, very much, but very reserved. But and uh, I've been told i sort of have her temper. Um, so, yeah, so my, they influenced and shaped me. And my grandfather gave me the Communist Manifesto and the Bible after I got kicked out of church when I was uh, 12 to read. And he said to me, like, these are white fellows' philosophy. You need to understand both of them. So, so my, Sundays, my Sundays were sitting there reading, you know, this Communist Manifesto and the Bible. And then he would kind of talk to me about what I thought about both of them. And then I would kind of like do this thing, going, "Well, look, I don't know really about Jesus, and I really don't know about these stories over here." And I'm thinking, you know, I really like this idea over about, you know, community controlled. I, I like that. I, you know, this is more like our mob. I like, I'd sort of do this, and I, you know, now I think about it, you know, that was just normal in our house. It's normal to sort of have these these kind of discussions. So I you know and i i did i was very political at school I'd do my own protest, you know I'd stand outside the door for six weeks wouldn't go inside do the lessons and because I had a really high i q it didn't matter like I'd go in and i'd <laughs> you know I'd it anyway so it it, it it um yeah i I always believed that one should stand up where injustice prevails, and i have been like that since as long as I can remember. I actually still trying to fathom the human condition that seeks to oppress, persecute, hurt, you know, in this horrible way. Like, you just do. I get perplexed by that, I think, to myself. And when we think about what's happening at the moment in the Ukraine and what's happening in Africa, uh, you know, Yemen, I mean, Jesus, like, it's it's almost unfathomable and and I think a lot of us shut it out and I was never taught to shut it out. It was basically always to be outward and
2: worldly looking as I lived, you know, a mile out of town on Stradbroke Island. I guess one thing I just want to pick up it comes through in terms of how international your exposure to ideas was but I remember trying to remember the first time I heard your name in that pantheon of great women that you uh, mentioned earlier, was, a, was probably around the work that you did with FARA internationally. And this is, for people who don't know, was um, an Aboriginal organisation that did really the groundbreaking work um, it, at the mm-hmm. UN. And I wonder if you could share with us what it was that made you realise that that was the forum in which it was so important for us. Because this was before the declaration... You know, it was sort of taking our issues there, and not just as an advocate, but understanding the importance of those international conversations with other people, um, which has been a hallmark of your work since. Yeah,
1: look, um, I was very fortunate in um, the the, the Les Malzer, Roy Tatten, Shorty O'Neill, Mick Miller, um, you know, and I call Clary Grogan. I'm just now trying to think about who uh, who were around and at that time in, uh, in the 70s was that we, we could see that fundamentally no matter what we did, either the Australian press would not shine a light on us and if they did, it was always in a negative and derogatory way and as if we had no rights. We had no right to actually voice the fact that we had rights and also that the government uh, wasn't really operationalizing its mandate you know despite the 67 referendum so when arakoon blew up it was our opportunity we, we seized the opportunity when the world council of churches came in to have a dialogue and to basically say okay we need to now be at the un we need to bring you know the rest of the world to see and at what's happening in australia you know australia was you know, carrying on like a pork chop about, you know, it was anti-apartheid and we're going, Hello, you set it up on the system in, in Queensland. Uh, you know, so so this the way in which Australia could basically continue to be this righteous and virtuous nation in the eyes of the world, um, when when fundamentally there were cracks right in the you know in in, in, in the picture. Um, and so the the international allowed us to take our voice, but it also gave us perspective on what kind of politics were possible, which we, uh, you know, anybody that basically hasn't travelled, when you basically... You can have a very isolated view of things. And to go to the UN and find out there were others, you know, in the similar boat. Um, so we instigated for um, changes, uh, which we ended up bringing back. Like, Farrah did smash the axe in Queensland. Um, and uh, I, I, was, I think I've mentioned to you before, like... We put this proposal to the United Nations and then the Queensland government wanted to charge us with treason because um, we, didn't, we didn't know that you have to run everything past government before it goes to the UN. So the government gets a chance to respond. So we, I just shipped it all off. And... Which is it? treason. And... and uh, you know, I was like, yeah, whatever. Um, and, and so, you know, they had this debate about whether or not they were going to, you know, charge us for treason and put us in jail. And, and we're like, oh, yeah, really? We well, Okay, go right ahead. Um, and I think that, um, you know, the kind of uh, strategic thinking that came out of the UN was really important. And the way in which we
2: learnt to use the politics of embarrassment. <laughs> Effectively. There's so much in that anecdote that's so wonderful in terms of um, what we can learn in terms of advocating for issues today, particularly in the irreverence to what people say you can and can't do. Um, I now want to um, just focus on this book. This is the um, US version of this book, um, uh, Talking Up to the White Woman, Indigenous Women and Feminism in Australia. Um, It came out of your doctoral thesis... Um, And it's been a highly influential book, being probably the most definitive account of the relationship between Aboriginal women and white feminism. And it's true to say that to this day, 20 years on. Mm. What does it feel like for you to be marking the 20th anniversary of this book? And what do you think has changed in that time or not changed?
1: I I mean, it it actually was an interesting... uh, It was interesting for me that all of a sudden... People wanted to hear about talking up to the white woman. And, you know, when you've written it 22 years before and, and didn't get a good reception, um, and then all of a sudden there's this interest. So I was curious, which is why I participate in things like this, because I'm fascinated by how white people respond. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, one is forever the anthropologist. Um, so... I really think that I... I, I so I was, I'm really interested, and I still am, as to why um, it is important. I, but, but given that I'd sort of become kind of like one of the key Indigenous scholars on race and whiteness uh, studies and understanding, I guess, the context in terms of, you know, the states, Canada, New Zealand, Hawaii, that um, I, I can see why. Like, it was before its time. And um, I didn't know that then... Um, but I, you know, I, I can at least understand that now. Uh, I last, so I thought I sort of thought that you might ask me a question like that. So last night, I thought I might have a look at the task force report that came out in 1986. It was the first actual national report on Indigenous women's business in this country, and uh, I then looked at the Women's Voice, which has been done by the Human Rights Commission. So what I was then looking at were the recommendations. So that's like, what, about 35 years apart. There was only two things that were different, climate change and youth suicide. So they mimic each other fundamentally in terms of the recommendations over 35 years. So if I want to talk about change, the fundamental change that's happened is that we have been incorporated further into the state's orbit, right? So native title has created another layer of government and turned our community organizations to some degree into another level of government which they weren't when we basically were in the in the 80s and and a lot of because a lot of the activism came out of those community organizations but what the state's done is overregulated and also Clive Holding was one of the first ministers that basically threatened uh, the uh, Tasmanian Legal Service about the withholding funds if you were going to uh, be too political. So, you know, that sent a message that we really had to control our political activism, uh, otherwise funding would be cut. And I think that's impacted on our activism um, and the the bureaucratization. Of indigenous, um, you know, service delivery, in that sense has, um, I think, hindered our opposition. And I, you know, I hear a lot of uh, what's, you know, what's going on really on the ground in our communities really hasn't changed. We still have communities that don't have water, like water has to be shipped out to Palm Island every year because. You know, Despite the fact there's a dam, it's in a rain shadow, but the dam isn't, isn't taken care of properly by the you know, Queensland State Government, and so water has to be trucked in. This, like, We're still talking about this. We saw the... I, I don't know if most people looked at Four Corners last night. Uh, you know, rheumatic heart condition. Still, my great-great-grandmother died of that, so to see these young women... Now, have things changed a lot? Mm.
2: We've been incorporated into the state. That's my answer to you on that one. All right. You did mention that the book is ahead of its time, and when I've gone back and reread it, which I've done a couple of times, as I mentioned, since it was um, reissued. One of the things that strikes me that I guess I didn't notice at the time when I'd first read it because it wasn't even labelled this was that you actually described the concept of white privilege, which of course is now a term that we talk about a lot. And I was just wondering... Um, for you, that's also been something... You talk about how you are a leader in the area of whiteness studies. Yes. Why that's been such an important intellectual project for you?
1: Look, uh, one of the things that always perplexed me, as even as a child, and then, you know, later as an adult, was how white people didn't understand that they were racist, right? And also how white people didn't understand that they were raced. So, and even when I did intellect... You know, I took one, I took one subject at uni on race and ethnicity, and I kept going, but the focus here is all on the oppressed, you know? Like, it's not on the oppressor. And these are... You know, you want to talk about it in terms of race relations, but really there's only blackness that's visible. And so, you know, so whiteness is actually invisible to those that are white. Like, not... You know, and a lot of that's tied to the way in which, you know... uh, Western culture inculcates the idea of the individual and that blackness is tied to race, you know, that they're not raced. It, you know, it's, it's all of that. So I, I had, I'd nutted that out, I guess, in the book um, because I, it was something that actually challenged me intellectually um, and I wanted to provide a way for... Uh, basically white feminists, to understand how racism works, you know? Um, and, and ironically, you sit there and go, look, and particularly for, you know, uh, socialist feminists and, and, uh, and Marxist feminists, you go, you understand how capitalism talks to you about the relationship between the ruling class and the rest of you, and yet you don't seem to think that there's the ruling race and the rest of us. Um, you know, so, I mean, that's a very simplified thing. But I, what I'm trying to say is that I think that it was really important to, to pull that out. And a lot of people didn't um, understand it. And I'm not talking here, and this is the other thing I really want to make clear. This is not about saying white woman. This is about saying it's a subject position. That means it's a part of who you are. It doesn't mean to say, you know, that it's all of you. And it's about the way in which you interact with the other, that part. Like, I don't know what it is to be a white woman in, a white, in your house. I can't embody that position. So all I'm trying to do, basically, in the book was to say, this is a subject position from which you act out of in relation to us, you know? And that needs to be changed. You know, and it's a power relation. And if you don't understand how that relation also has... it ..gains its power from its proximity to patriarchy, then you're blinded by your perceived oppression. I wanted to basically get those points out in the book, and I think I did. And, look, to me, this was... You see, I didn't think it was Enlightenment, because this is... This come, that book comes from Aboriginal women... You know, this is this is Aboriginal women's stuff. This is not Aileen Morton Robinson. I mean, all I did was put it together in a way in which it could pass in the academy and it could speak to people. But this is this is Aboriginal women, and so I so I find really in talking about it, I you know, because it's not me. Like it's not my work. It's the work of all these other women and. Uh, so I, I don't kind of invest it, I guess, with the same, you know. I, I get embarrassed because I think, well, that's, 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 this is the knowledge from Aboriginal women. It's their experiences.
0: You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio.
2: This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. This week we're taking a look back at the conversation First Nations women look to the future. It was held earlier this year as part of the All About Women Festival hosted by the Sydney Opera House. Right now, though, some music from country music legend Roger Knox.
0: It was a cold and rainy summer night When I first heard his song I was sitting in a prison cell Wondering where my life had gone As I heard his guitar playing low I listened to the words And the song he sang was soft and low Was the saddest I had heard When you lock behind those cold grey walls It's a long and lonely ride After six long years in a prison cell I guess the young man's dreams had died I heard him crying late one night As I was lying in the dark started singing out his song and he sang it from the heart He sang play for me the song of thunder Bring to me a dream I left my youth behind me in all the places I have been Let your black clouds open over me Oh, cleanse me with your rain Let your winds. Some freedom to the warrior in chains There's two things that don't go together well That's a black man and a prison cell The cold remorse, the aggravation You're not even missed on the mission station And the guilty ones are those who blame The black man who hangs his head in shame Instead of letting him build his pride before it's another senseless suicide. When they tried to wake him in the morning, they found that he was dead. But I knew his spirit was flying free in those dark clouds overhead. When we gathered in the chapel, I swore I heard him sing his song. And as the rains poured from those thunderclouds, I just had to sing along. Won't you play for me that song of thunder, bring to me a dream. I left my youth behind me, in all the places I have been. Let your black clouds open over me. four weeks. for me that song of thunder brings you me a dream I left my youth behind me in all the places
2: Roger Knox with Warrior in Chains. Let's hear more now from distinguished Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson. One thing you have to learn about Aunt is she's incredibly (laughs) self-deprecating. And I guess one thing I I just wanted to ask you then that the the panel is sort of, or the session is focused on the future. And I know you've made a reflection on how far we haven't come by putting those two reports side by side. But what is your most optimistic version of a future in this space between First Nations women and uh, the rest of the colony?
1: See, I find that hard to answer. <laughs> and I do because, look, it took them centuries to get here. It's going to take centuries to unpack it. And, you know, the way that, the way that I've been taught about the future is, the future is the past. Like my, my grandparents would always say that, it is the past that's in front of you. The future is behind you. You can't see what the future is, but you can always see what the past. And the past will always give you indicators for the future. So when I, what I would like to see, I guess, is Aboriginal women come together stronger. Like, we set up the Federation of Aboriginal Women in, I think it was 1980. Alexis Wright wrote, wrote the manifesto for it. We, we need to have, you know, take power as women. And I don't mean taking power as women on social media, you know, and giving opinionated pieces. I mean collectively taking power and working as a collective to bring about change. You know, I think that um, that is what's missing. There's a lot of people saying things, but there's not a lot of people doing things. Um, and as I said, there's a, still a lot to be done. You know, every social indicator, we're still down the bottom. We're still down the bottom. <laughs>
2: Um, In hearing you speak, I'm really reminded of, you know, um, we are the world's oldest living culture. Yes. And I think there's more acknowledgement now that one of the reasons that's the case is because we understood how to live sustainably with the environment. Mm -hmm. But I think less recognition is given to the fact that, yes, you have the world's oldest living culture because you know how to live with the environment, but you also have to know how you live with each other. And there's been a few things where you've spoken about in terms of the role of Aboriginal women within the Aboriginal community in a, in a pre-colonialised st- mm. um, structure without the influences, the misogynistic influences of um, colonisation. And I was just wondering from your perspective, you've touched on it a little bit, but um, in terms of improving, empowering, making space... Allowing Aboriginal and First Nations women to just be, what do you see as the role of First Nations women in that project?
1: I think the role of First Nations women in the project is what it's always been, and that is to basically maintain our culture and to maintain our communities. We do that, we're the backbone of every community organisation. It's women that are always there. It's women, you know, women have led struggles for land rights, women for native title... Women have been at the forefront. So I've I've grown up in a community like that. And what I want to see more, though, is that kind of... The way that women of my generation collectively work together, and that's what I'm trying to get at, is that I think that we need to get back to those ways of being, knowing and doing as Aboriginal women. I do think that... um, there is also a place for leadership, women's leadership you know, within government. Uh, we, st- you know, we still don't have an office of Indigenous women in this country. Um, and Indigenous women's issues are not you know, taken care of by the Office of Women in Prime Minister and Cabinet. I decided to look that up last night. Six times the word Aboriginals uh, mentioned in the report and to government. And then, you know what it says, Larissa? Oh, we, need to, we, need to, we need to do more research on how we should engage with Aboriginal women. (laughs) You just sit there and go, I could swear, but I'm not going to. It's like, (laughs) you know... And and so there's lots of ways, but I would like to see more of a national movement, right? National movement led by um, older women and those that are coming through. Because our job is also not just to open opportunities and support... But it's also to, to tell you where you're going wrong. Right? That's part of my role. And, and, and it's part of older women's role. Because that's how I learnt. I learnt not just... You know, a lot of the time, Aboriginal elders, women elders, wouldn't, wouldn't go, oh, Bob, that's really deadly. No, they didn't. It was like, you just get a nod. But you know what? If you did it wrong, <laughs> you got told. And you learnt. Like, I, I learnt about the kind of etiquettes so and knowing my place in my community and, and in the broader community. Um, you know, do you know what it's like when you're, like, 22 years of age? You're sitting at a community meeting and Aunty Jean Phillips... And Frank Brennan comes. And Frank Brennan's talking about... And he's a lawyer. And Aunty Jean Phillips is going like this to me. <laughs> you know and I'm like I'm like this going <laughs> you know and you're like <laughs> oh Father Frank um, <laughs> you know like you know it, it, it's it, it, so you got instructed and directed and, um, and and I learnt from that and so I think that we have to get back to some of our cultural ways of knowing, being and doing and come together as women. Like I would love a huge national conference on Indigenous women, and and not about you know a particular topic. I mean, just bringing women together, and then we create that in that space, which is what we did with the Federation of Aboriginal Women. You know, and um, so I, I would. I think that the time's right for that. Uh, I think the time's right too for a, um, you know, an Indigenous. Uh, Female Academic Association as well in the academy. Um,
2: there's, there's lots of things, uh, Larissa, or I could suggest that we do, but I've got to be quiet. I guess th- this is a time where a lot of people are feeling a lot of anxiety. They're feeling anxiety because of COVID, it's changing yep. world, uh, things like the changing geopolitical situation.
0: Yep.
2: Um, we've seen enormous shifts in, in how we understand the climate. With your auntie hat on, your distinguished aunt hat on, what's your advice for people in terms of how they navigate this? COVID, I think what COVID, instead of seeing COVID
1: as negative, I think it's about, it, COVID gives us an opportunity to think about who we are as humans. It gives us the opportunity to slow down. It gives us the opportunity to think and love more with our families, You know, COVID, even though they're apart, I think what COVID has done to some degree is reminded us that we are in relationship with everything, right? And that is not something that we should, you know, say, oh, COVID's going to be finished and we can revert back to because we really need to think about that in relation to the future. We... COVID is telling us, I guess... You know, for all the um, climate change that's occurred, we know that that's really bad human behaviour that's created it. And bad human behaviour has created COVID, right? So what, is that, what does that mean? You know, if these are the outcomes of bad human behaviour, what do we learn from that? And how do we not do it Again. How do we and how do we understand that COVID that Mother Earth is talking to us through COVID, Mother Earth? It's so much quieter. The whales are singing and going stupid, right? Because of the inactivity of us on this planet, the slowing down of things. Um, I was, you know, I, all I could do was smile when I got the report that the dolphins were back in the canals in Venice, right? And why wouldn't they be? Because our nonsense had stopped, you know? And so how do we as humans understand ourselves beyond ourselves as the center of things and the planet? And to understand the planet as something that is alive, you know, it it might blow everybody's heads, but if you just sit there and think the build, this building is on something that's actually alive. And then you think, how would you feel? And then you think, oh, over here they're gonna dig me up. Or they're gonna extract this out of me. And you know, science, science wants to tell us it's got the answer for everything. And in some ways it's become a religion. But science can't answer everything. You know, we need to think differently as humans We need to aspire to be different kinds of humans from the capitalist-produced one that's occurred in the last couple of centuries, right? Like, we've got to change the focus. We really have to stop being so so self-centred. We've got to become less possessive. We've got to become more caring, more sharing. We've got to take care of country, Right? You all don't need a brand-new mobile phone, right? You've got to think of your carbon footprint in terms of technology. You know, we're, we're blinded by the fact that technology is supposedly enabling us. Mm-hm. What is it actually enabling us to do? And what is it doing for the planet? What's invisible about this energy use? I... Um, these are the things that I sit and think about because I... I lived in a world that didn't have that, right? And I, I was raised on country to understand that it's alive. And one of the most telling things for me about Aboriginal people, when you go out into community, this is just, just we walk lightly on the land. I got asked once, did I do ballet? And I said, no, To the, she was a ballerina. I said, no, I don't. She said, oh my God, you walk like a dancer. You're so light on your feet. I said, that's because I'm very, um, I was taught basically about placing my feet and my body and my weight on the earth, right, to have a consciousness of that. And so I don't step around, you know, like, um, you know, they're just differences in the way in which cultures talk and, and Indigenous cultures fundamentally are about being part of the earth. They're not about being separate from it. And so relationality is where we begin. It's the premise of who we are. You know, we can't know unless we're related. We are not who we are without being related to somebody. And, um, you know, that might be a good thing for white people to start thinking about. <laughs> like, who are you? Where do you come from? Who is your mob? How did you get to be here? You know? Like, how, how, how does that history unfold? And then maybe you'll understand when we say to you, you benefit from our dispossession every day, right? You might you might think you're a good white person, and good luck, lovely, lovely. You know, my husband thinks he's a really good person. I keep telling him he dis, you know, he benefits from the dispossession every day. You know, it's it's like how do you, and how do you then work to
2: change that? It just yeah, Well, no, no. I'm just. This, it shows the wisdom of our elders that um, you anticipated a couple of questions that have come through. Now that I know what they are, um, and that was um, one about uh, acknowledging that white women need Indigenous wisdom right now. From from uh, Kristen who asks what opportunities. Do people have non-indigenous people, white women, to learn more about uh, indigenous perspectives and ways of being? And similarly, a question from anonymous about uh, how do privileged white women practically support their indigenous sisters in 2022? So I wonder if there were anything you wanted to add to that.
1: Yeah, look, you can start with yourself, okay? Like, like, don't get, don't like, please don't run to help us, because like. You know, just like, you know, you know, like, help yourself. <laughs> start with you. Start with your families. You know, like, it's, it's part of changing being that kind of human being. It's what I, you know, the message is on point. Fundamentally, you need to look at yourself, your relationship to your mob. What happened? How you got there? And then maybe come and talk to us. But don't come and damage us more, you know, by wanting to help us. You know, don't do that. Because, you know, it's like Foley says, we have missionaries, mercenaries, morons and misfits, that, right? They come come to us. And it's true. And, and so it's not as though our lives are burdened already. Uh, we then got crazies that we have to. <laughs> and, you know, most black fellas take care of white fellas. They do. You know, sometimes you just go, oh, come on, you know, like... But it, 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 it's, it's a labour, right? It's a labour that you have to do when people are ignorant of their own white race privilege. Um, but... but it's, and it's laborious in the sense that you have to take care of them because they're on your country. And it's laborious in the sense that you've got to try and teach them, even though they don't want to know. You know, and it's laborious because you're standing there going, why the hell am I dealing with this person who's come to help? It's like, please go away. Um, yeah, I, I, that's, I do, I, I, I hide a lot, there are times when I had what, what people come to help Farah, and you'd find me in the toilet, because <laughs> I'd have to sit in there because my temper would get the worst, I'd be sitting there going, you know, just let it go, you know, it's come on now, can't help it, Dougal can't help it, you know what your grandmother would say, you know, they only got to live in one culture, poor things, and therefore, you've got to think about the fact that you've got to take care of them because you've lived in more and you know about more. So, you know what? You've got to just... She would. That's what she would say to us. And we, we got that. You don't have to feel sorry for them. You know, they're
2: not real smart. <laughs> I'm just going to squeeze one more question in um, because it feels like a good question oh for our time. <laughs> And, and that is, um, you know, it, it's a question about you. In terms of all the work you've done, how exhausting it is. And I think that's an observation a lot of women and First Nations women make about the endless work that they do, that it is very tiring and exhausting. How do you stay strong?
1: I listen to the voices of my grandparents and my ancestors and my mum. I, I listen to that um, and I... That's what keeps me going um, because the the thing is, Larissa, we don't have really a choice. Uh, as my grandmother used to say, you know, when you always think that you've got it bad, there'll be another Aboriginal woman that's got it worse and until it's sorted, you don't rest. So... Because... And that, or the other part was that because white people are not going to do it for you, right? Only we can change this. And that we've got to do that by sharing and caring and loving each other. So what, what keeps me strong, I guess, is the love, you know? And, um, and that just keeps me going. And, and I know that the business is unfinished. So,
2: whilst ever I can, I will. What a wonderful note to finish on. Yeah. Um, I would just note that um, Distinguished Professor, Distinguished Aunt, Aileen Morton-Robinson's book is available. We're not doing sit-down signings because of COVID, but if you are masked up and see Distinguished Aunt in the foyer... Uh, you may ask her for an autograph. Um, and I know there were some really good questions that we didn't get to. My apologies for not working. They did give me a trial run and it just didn't work like this. Um, so my apologies for not getting to your questions if I didn't, but I'm sure she's very generous, as you can see. If you can find her, if she's not hiding, um, I'm sure she'd be, <laughs> be chewing. I might. But please join me um, to, in thanking distinguished Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson. Thank you, That's Distinguished Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson. She was speaking as part of the conversation First Nations Women Look to the Future, held as part of the 2022 All About Women Festival hosted by the Sydney Opera House. To take us out this week, we'll leave you with some music from the Pigram Brothers. Here they are with Roll On Home. (laughs) show for this week. Join us again next week for more stories from Indigenous Australia. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Manel Creed. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.